At this point in the service, if you're in kindergarten or to second grade, you're welcome to primary church. Uh, if you're not, uh, we pray with me. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. Every week as we get deeper and deeper into this book of Revelation, it feels uh, both more complicated and more simple. And I pray this morning that you would make it um, understandable. I pray for those who don't know Jesus that you would uh, give them uh, a call. Call their hearts. Open their eyes that they might know you. I pray for those who have trusted Jesus before that, that, that you would uh, awaken them even more, that you would convict their hearts of the truthfulness of the gospel, convict their hearts with joy even. Father, I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. You know, as I was looking at the text this morning during the week, thought, I, for some reason I, I thought of my poor mother often at times. The reason I say my poor mother, but many of you who know me know that um, I grew up sort of with ADHD, undiagnosed, and in, in the age when evil can evil was popular. So I think by the time I was in junior high, I had broken almost every bone in my body at one time or another, except for my collarbone. And I got caught doing everything I ever did. One of the most heartbreaking things, I think, for my mom is when she caught me smoking at age seven. I mean, Brett wanted to do it as my buddy. You know, we went across the street to the fork. Both of us snuck a couple of, you know, cigs from our parents. And the, 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 the fly in the ointment, of course, was my little sister, Katie. She ratted me out for everything I ever did. And our parents, when, our, when we got home, our parents dealt with us in, in summary fashion, but they dealt with us quite differently. My parents spanked me one time, and it was the kind of spanking that to this day I can remember. Um, they spanked me one time, and they never said another word about it. Brett's parents, on the other hand, sat him down at the table and said, you want to smoke, huh? He said, I guess so. And they put a carton of cigarettes in front of him and said, well, you're going to smoke then. You're going to sit at this table and you're going to smoke cigarettes until that whole carton is done. And he thought it was pretty cool at the beginning, if I remember correctly. Until about the third smoke in, he started to throw up. In other words, his parents brought down discipline on him. And the discipline they brought on him was it was nothing more, nothing less than that which he asked for. You want discipline? You want punishment? I'm just going to give you what you ask for. The reason I tell you that story is because as we jump into today's text in Revelation, by the time it ends, it is this, this note of somber judgment. It's this note of, of drinking the, the wine of God's wrath and smoke coming up and the lamb and, and his followers watching as people are punished and tortured. And the question has to be, as you move through the text, is are they getting what they deserve? Are they getting what they ask for? Or are they getting something that God is just being capricious and he's just being mean. And so as we go through the book of Revelation, I hope you've seen that there's really two kinds of people as we review this book. Am I up there? Two kinds of people. What are the people that we see in the book of Revelation? They're, they're those who follow the lamb and those who follow the dragon or the beast. There are those who have the mark of the, the beast on their forehead or those who have the mark of the lamb on their forehead. And so as we've gone through this book, it becomes more and more clear that there, there's only one of two ways to go, ultimately. That's either to be a follower of the dragon, and we, we've defined that. The book of Revelation says that is Satan himself, or a follower 
of Jesus. And today's text, it really makes it clear. Before we jump into the text, I wanted to go through a little review. Remember the purpose of the book of Revelation in general. And again, it's one of these books that people make very complicated, but I think it's actually less complicated. The purpose of the book of Revelation, in a nutshell, is this. It's to teach us, the church, that Jesus has won in the past, he will win in the future, and he is winning right now. And by that, I mean, what did he win in the past? Remember when Adam brought sin into the world, he plunged not only all of us into guilt, but all of creation into chaos. Well, at the cross, Jesus bore that curse. He bore our sin, and, because, and he won completely. There's nothing else that has to be done ever to pay for our sin. He won already. He will win in the future, because in the future, he's ultimately going to clean everything up, and all of creation will bear the, the, the fruit of his death on the cross. And not only is he going to win in the future, but he's winning right now. And that's the biggest struggle for us, frankly, right? Do you look at yourself and ask yourself, does it look like Jesus is winning right now when it comes to my life? Maybe your marriage is hard. Maybe relationships are hard. Maybe work is hard. Everything seems like it's not easy. Is Jesus winning? And what the book of Revelation says that Jesus is winning right now. He's winning. He's executing his plan to win the nations to himself. He's executing his plan to, win, to, to even in your life, all the hard things, to work them together for good. So that's part of the purpose. The other part of the purpose of the book of Revelation is to get the church to wake up and look outward. It's, not, it's really not that complicated. Remember, the book is written to seven churches. The seven churches in Asia, all of the churches had a problem, and the problem was that they were struggling with being outwardly faced. That's my word. They were struggling with bearing witness to those around them. Two of them were, were actually trying, but they were being persecuted, and it was hard. They were faithful. The rest of them either weren't trying at all, or they were compromising with the culture. And so the book of Revelation is constantly pointing out to us, A, that we are to be engaging the world around us, but B, there's only so much time left. In other words, the book of Revelation should impart to us a sense of urgency. And so as we go through, one more other thing I want to remind you of is this whole idea of re recapitulation. And if you've not been here, you don't remember that word. Basically, recapitulation is a fancy theological word for repetition. In other words, it, it, it means repetition. So a good, a good example of recapitulation is the, are the Gospels, the story of Jesus. That they're told four different times from four different perspectives with different varying intensity. And so when you look at the book of Revelation, it's really the same story. The book of Revelation ultimately is the history of redemption told over and over and over again, sometimes from different perspectives, sometimes with different levels of intensity. Remember Eugene Peterson said there's nothing new in the book of Revelation. There's nothing new. It's the same old information, the same old gospel uh, given to us in a new way. And so that's, that's important to realize because remember we went through the seals, the seven seals. And the seven seals take us from, from basically Jesus' resurrection until the end of time. Seven trumpets resurrecting to the end of time. And we're getting ready in a couple weeks to look at the seven bowls of God's wrath. And right now, we're in the middle of this long interlude. And between these scenes of seals and trumpets and things, we're given interludes. And the purpose of the interludes is to encourage the church. Because you look at the seven seals and you can get pretty down. And you say, man, that's a drag. Or the seven trumpets, that's a drag. The seven bowls of God's wrath, really a drag. And so in between those times, John encourages the church. And so we're looking, he's in the middle of this vision. And that's why the text opens up, he says, then I looked. Because he's seeing one thing after another. And today's uh, passage in chapter 14, 
obviously comes right off the heels of chapter 13, which comes off the heels of chapter 12. Chapter 12, we're reminded that there's this one called the dragon, Satan, who's continually at war with the woman and her offspring. That's us. And then in chapter 13, we hear, how does the dragon wage war against the woman and her offspring, us? Well, he wages war with us by way of of, uh, government and the state and things like that, but also through religion. And that's where we looked last week in the mark of the beast, and those who follow the beast had his mark. And this week, intentionally, is a contrast with chapter 13. So if you are a note taker, I have three points basically for you. The first thing we're going to look at today is the Lamb's army. That's verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to look at what I'm calling the last call. And then finally, we're going to have a, a reality check. And so for verses 1 through 5, the Lamb's army, what do we see? The first thing I want you to notice is who they are. Who is this, these people that I'm calling the Lamb's army? He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So who, who are these people? This 144,000. They're standing on Mount Zion. First of all, what is, what's going on here? What's the picture? Well, in the Old Testament, when Messiah comes, when he has conquered everything, when he has made everything complete in the way it's supposed to be, he stands on Mount Zion. And so here's the Lamb standing on Mount Zion as the victorious king. And the 144,000, they are there with him. And notice what they have on them. They have their na- the Father's name and the Lamb's name on their forehead. A few verses ago, we saw that the followers of the beast had his name on their foreheads or their hands. So they're marked, just like the followers of the beast are marked, the followers of the Lamb are marked. But these are the ones who have endured. Remember as we looked at chapter 13, when he talked about the first beast, the the way John concluded was he said this, he said, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. And then last week when we talked about the second beast, he ended by saying, here is a call for wisdom. And when you get to chapter 14, what you have is a picture of those who have endured the wrath of the beast. Those who have survived, if you will. And those who have survived are part of this, these, this group called the 144,000. We looked at that before when we did chapter 7. And the bottom line is, is what I've told you, at least my perspective, my understanding, is the 144,000 is all of the church. It's a complete number. It's, a, it's like a census, and it's a complete number of all the saints throughout all of history, Old Testament and New Testament. Every single person that is supposed to be standing around the Lamb at the end of time will be standing around the Lamb. It's a precise, complete number of people. That's who they are. The next question is, what do they do? Look at verse 2 and 3. It says, he jumps and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So what do they do? So these are the saints who have endured, they have survived the wrath of the beast, and they are now standing in the presence of the Lamb. And what do they do? Answer, they sing. And not only do they sing, they sing loudly. In fact, they sing so loudly that when John hears it, he says, I heard the voice like, like many thunders. It was overwhelmingly loud, but it wasn't overwhelming and crushing. It was overwhelming and beautiful because it says also it sounded like harps. They're all like they're playing harps up there. 
But you see, the saints who have been redeemed spend their time, among other things, singing. And they sing to the Lamb. What do they sing? They sing what John has called before in here, a new song. Now what is the new song? Is it some special information? Is it cryptic? And the answer is absolutely not. Remember, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to, at some level, understand the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, whenever God achieved a victory that was outside of human possibility, that God delivered people when the only chance was that if God intervened, they would sing songs, and those songs were called new songs. In other words, a new song just means it's a song of victory. And it's not just any victory. It's a victory that God accomplished without any help from us. It's a, it's, a, it's a victory in which we were hopeless and helpless and at the end of our rope, sort of like Israel standing at the edge of the Red Sea. And we've got water on one side and Pharaoh coming at us at the other side. What do you do now? I mean, the only thing that could help us now is if God would actually come and part this thing. And he does. And they get to the other side and they sing a new song. It's the song of Moses. We're going to talk about that next week. And so what is the song that you and I will be singing throughout history? This new song. It's a song of victory. And it's a victory that was accomplished on our behalf. And it's a victory that we couldn't accomplish by ourselves. Right? Remember Ephesians says, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, and there's absolutely no way that we could save ourselves from our sins. That Jesus came in the person of, of, God came in the person of Jesus and died on the cross, rescued us from our sins, and achieved this victory that you and I in our wildest dreams couldn't think of. Now here's the beauty of it. This new song, it's a song not only about the Lamb, but it's really a song about you and me as well. Because we're part of the story. We're part of the, the, the victory that happened if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, what you're going to be singing about is how Jesus delivered you when you were helpless, how Jesus delivered you when you were without a prayer. And it's a song that will resonate throughout eternity, but it's also the song we sing right now. Do you believe that? If you're a Christian, do you believe that? And if you believe that, why are you so miserable? Seriously. I taught the discovery class yesterday, and I I do the same shtick every time, and I talk about Martin Lloyd-Jones and how he says... He said to his church, you know, 80 years ago, we have a problem in our church. He said, the problem in our church is very few people have come to know, Christ, come to know Jesus. And as far as I can tell, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I would never say something like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the reason very few people become Christians in our church is because you are the most miserable people I've ever seen in my life. And he says, I think the reason you're miserable is either you don't believe the gospel or you don't understand the gospel. And then he explains it to them. And what you have here, in the the first five verses here, is this picture of the gospel. It's the end. You know, Stephen J. Covey says, begin with the end in mind. The end is you standing at the foot of Jesus on Mount Zion, singing a song of his victory over your sin for all eternity. That should bring some amount of joy to your heart, I would hope. So what do they do when they're there? I mean, how do they live? Notice verses 4 and 5. He says that in verse 4, it says that it is these, this, this army, this church, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, and it is those who follow the Lamb, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever they go. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So how do they live? There's at least three different things we see here. First of all, we see about the, the, these, these 144,000 is that they're undefiled. 
but they're undefiled by the world. Now remember, the seven churches would have been listening to this letter as well. And the seven churches would have really been struggling with whether or not they should compromise with Rome, who was asking them to worship the emperor. And in our own ways, we're asked to worship at idols of our own. But he says, these are the ones who are undefiled. They didn't give in. They didn't, they didn't let the world defile them. They didn't give in. But also it's a picture of what Jesus has done for them. Remember chapter 7 when it talks about the 144,000. It says, these are the ones who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, who made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. So the reason they're undefiled is not because they never did anything wrong. It's because everything that they've ever done wrong has been credited to Jesus' account, and everything that he ever did right was credited to theirs. And because of that and that only are they undefiled. But something else is going on here as well. The only time you count people at this level in the Bible is when you're getting ready to go to war when you're forming an army. And in the Old Testament, when you formed an army, the men were to abstain from sexual relations before they actually went to war. And so there's a sense in which this is a picture of God's army. And the picture of God's army, why does God need an army in this world? It's an army that engages the world with the gospel. And it's an army not that engages with guns or violence, but it's an army that engages with sacrifice and self-sacrifice and words of peace, words of hope, but mostly this message that Jesus has given his life for sinners. What else do they do? Notice it says that they follow him, the lamb, wherever he goes. They follow him wherever he goes. What does that mean? Well, if you look back to the, to the Gospels, what, did, what was Jesus' primary question to people? Jesus never said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your act together. I want you to be good. And when you stop doing all these bad things, when you stop being a sinner, then come and follow me. He basically said some version of this, will you follow me? Or he'd say, follow me. But then it was up to you, am I going to follow him or not? And what the disciple does is they follow Jesus. And it says, these are the ones who who follow the Lamb wherever he went. Wherever he goes, that's where they went, because they were disciples. And it's also instructive, because, you know, I remember being in churches before. I didn't grow up in church, but even in my adult life I've heard, you know, when people feel like that God is, is far away, have you ever heard this? They say, well, God didn't move, you moved. That's not true all the time. If you look at the Old Testament, every now and then Israel, God was with them by pillar of fire and pillar of smoke, and sometimes they would all be sitting around the campfire, imagine, and the pillar of fire just got up and went someplace else. And when God moved, you were supposed to get up and follow where God went. And here it doesn't say that the lamb follows them wherever they go. It says that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And where does the lamb tend to go? The lamb tends to go into the trenches. The lamb tends to go after the worst of sinners. The lamb tends to go after people who are helpless and hopeless. Is that where we go? Followers of the lamb go there. What's the last thing we see about how they live? And it says in verse 5, it says, And in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. I thought it was interesting that, that at the culmination of what their lives are like is he says that in their mouth no lie is found, because they are blameless. And I think it's because if you look at the whole Bible, what the whole Bible says in in many ways is just this. If you want to know what's going on in your heart, just watch what comes out of your mouth. If you you want to see how, to the, the extent to which you understand this thing we call the gospel, just look at what comes out of your mouth. And I've told you all stories about the tongue exercise, right? If you want to find out, there's this ministry called Sonship used to do a 
exercise called the tongue exercise. And basically they would say, what we want you to do is take one week, and in one week's time we'd want you to not say anything negative, don't slander, don't gossip, don't criticize, don't be cynical, don't do anything negative. On the other hand, we want you to bless people, we want you to tell people about Jesus, we want you to encourage people, all those. And after a week, let's gather together and see how it goes, how, did it, how, how it went. And I did this experiment when I was working for Eli Lilly during my training time. There was a guy that rode with us, my, my roommate and I, you, you know, we had these apartments and you ride to the training center, and there was a guy that rode with us who cussed so much, I called him Cartman, I forget his real name. And one morning I said, Cartman, will you do me a favor? And he said, what's that? And I said, let's do this exercise. It's called the tongue exercise. And I explained it to him. I said, just, let's do it for you. Let's just do it a day. So for one day, I don't want you to cuss. I don't want you to, to badmouth anybody. I don't want you to be cynical. I don't want you to criticize people in class, nothing. And I only want you to, to bless people and say nice things about them. He's not a Christian. And so we got to the training thing. We both went to our classes about 8 o'clock. At 8.45, they released you to come to go get a cup of coffee, and I met him at the coffee maker, and he just looked pale. And I said, Cartman, are you doing all right? And he said, I'm going to hell, dude. I am going to hell. I said, why? He said, I couldn't help myself. It just kept coming out. <laughs> you see, if you want to know where your heart is with regard to the gospel, there's, really, there's actually two places to look. I'm not talking about the one today. One is where your money goes, but the other is where your mouth goes. And so ask yourself, are you one who is defined by telling the truth? I know a lot of people who struggle with telling the truth. Do you slander? Do you gossip? All of these kinds of things. Because if you do, right, the disciple follows Jesus, but, but if the disciple follows Jesus, he or she uh, also acts like Jesus. I was reminded of this passage from Second uh, First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Uh, Peter says, for, to, for, to you, this, you, for you have been called to this, that because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And the example we have there, don't get me wrong, the example is Jesus didn't lie and Jesus didn't revile, so you shouldn't revile. The example there is that the way Jesus was able to keep from lying, the way Jesus was able to keep from reviling, the way he was able to keep from gossiping or slandering was that he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. In other words, he believed the promise of God that he would never fail him or forsake him. When you catch yourself lying, when you catch yourself spinning the truth, when you catch yourself slandering somebody or saying something bad about somebody, ask yourself this question, do I really trust God? Don't say, is it the right thing or the wrong thing? Just ask myself, do I, do I really entrust myself to him who judges justly? And so the next place that John goes, he gives this picture, right, of, of what it looks like to be a disciple, that, that you're standing in Mount Zion, you're singing, and here's what they look like. You know, they, 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 no lie comes out of their mouth. They follow the lamb and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden he takes a turn. He actually draws, it's almost as if he takes a big line and he draws a thick line. So on one hand, here's how the redeemed live. You get this vision of the future of the redeemed. And then you get, basically, he steps backward in time and gives us what I'm going to call this thing, the last call. Right? Remember the book of Revelation, among other things, is all about the fact that, that there's only so much time before Jesus returns. And so what, when we talk about the last call... There's basically three angels that are given here. And the, the angels are what I'm going to call a gospel angel... 
a warning angel, and finally a judgment angel. Notice the gospel angel in verses 6 and 7. He says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and people and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. So what is this gospel angel talking about? Well, for one, the, angel, the gospel angel is either an angel, like a literal angel that's flying, or it's symbolic for the, the church. It's symbolic for those who would preach the gospel. But what does the gospel angel do? First of all, he proclaims to those who still dwell on earth. And remember, those who dwell on earth, or, or earth dwellers in the book of Revelation, is a technical term for people who do not believe the gospel. And so what does he do? First, it says he proclaims to them the eternal gospel. Now, I'm only going to take a minute on what, what this eternal gospel thing is, but if you are in a growth group, a sermon-based growth group, that start this week, they're actually going to spend quite a bit of time digging deeper into what the quote, eternal gospel is. But, but for the sake of argument right now, the eternal gospel is just this. It, what it's saying is that God, the gospel was not God's plan B. When we think of eternity, typically we tend to think of where we are now and look forward. But eternity, in God's mind, is where we are now, it's forward and it's backwards. And remember what we looked at earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and chapter 13, that who survives, it's those whose names have been written in the book of the Lamb of, of God before the foundation of the world. In other words, God's plan from, from the foundation of the world was this thing called the gospel, to draw a people unto himself, to redeem them by his son Jesus the Lamb. It's not a plan B. It's not an afterthought. It's not something he just came up with after everything else failed. That the gospel is something that, that was, has been there since the beginning of time and it will continue till the end of time. And what does the angel say? He, he basically tells people to repent. And what does repent mean? It means to turn from your sin and turn to God. Notice he says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And again, there's a sense of urgency he says, fear God, give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. This is the last call. It's the last time I'm going to say anything about your, your chance to repent, he says. Because after this, it's all over. And that's what happens after this, these other angels. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, A, am I a Christian? And B, if I'm not a Christian, what does this mean for me? Is it the last call? Is it, can I really, should I really have a sense of, of urgency about this? You know, is Jesus really going to come back before all this happens? Well, Jesus might not come back before all this happens, but that doesn't mean something wouldn't happen to you. And the question is, do you know Jesus? Look at what where happens with the warning angel. He says, another angel, second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now it's interesting here because there's a sense in which he's given the last call and he's almost anticipating what the person who is not a believer is thinking. Because remember what the chapter 13 talked about is those who follow the beast, their temptation and what they actually do is they actually put their faith in something other than God. And in chapter 13 they put their faith in the government, basically, or the state to take care of them. And you remember we talked about that, that if you put your faith in anything but Jesus, you will ultimately be disappointed. But what he's saying here is he's making a statement about putting your faith in other things, but specifically in the state or organizations. In the Old Testament, Babylon was the ones who came through and destroyed the first temple. 
And in the New Testament, shortly after the Rome came through and destroyed the second temple, the early church, we know, would have, when they heard Babylon, they would have heard Rome. And what they're saying is you might put your faith in Rome, and Rome might give you a lot of stuff, and you might think that if, as long as you support them, that you're going to be okay. But what are you saying is at the end of the day, fallen, fallen is Babylon. That state, that city, that anything that you are actually putting your trust in other than Jesus is so certain to fall, he says it in the past tense. And he says it twice to make sure you got it. Fallen, fallen. And what does he say about her? He says, she who made the nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. And that should actually say the wine of her passion which leads to sexual immorality. And the picture here is a picture really from the Old Testament that's, that talks about uh, adultery. But not just any adultery, but it's spiritual adultery. In other words, in the Old Testament, when Israel followed other gods, gods other than the one that they were supposed to, that was likened to spiritual adultery. It was, a, it was likened to sexual immorality. And he says, those who have, have drank of this wine, who have done that, the jig is up. Because after the last call and the, the sort of final warning, judgment comes. And that's the last angel. Notice what the last angel says. He says in verse 9, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. So it's, there's an interesting contrast here, because notice the, the last warning was basically, woe to those who drink of the, from Babylon, you know, who drink her wine and, and become uh, engaged in, in adultery with her. He says basically, and this is where my friend comes in, the story of Brett. What God is saying says here at the end, if you, you want to drink wine, you want to follow Babylon, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you drink all the wine that you want. Notice what he says there. He says he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. In other words, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, basically when people drank wine at dinner or they drank wine with friends, they would water it down by about half. You only drank wine full strength if you wanted to get drunk. And what God says, you want to drink wine... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you drink all the wine you want. And not only are you going to drink all the wine you want, but it's going to be undiluted wine. And it's the wine of my wrath. And there's a sense in which God is saying here, so I'm going to let you guys get drunk, but it's going to be dead drunk. You can drink, you could, you could drink the wine of gladness, or you can drink the wine of God's wrath. Now here's the irony to this is what he's, he's promising to people who refuse to trust Jesus is something that Jesus himself has already done for the same people. That what Jesus did on the cross was bore the wrath of God. In other words, he drank the full cup of wrath that God had. He drank it all the way down to the dregs. He bore it. It's done. It's completely done. That's the good news of the gospel. So on one hand, if you're sitting in here saying, man, that's a drag. It's really, you know, gosh, is that what I have to look forward to? And the answer is you don't have to. I remember years ago, I was reading a Puritan named John Owen. And it was his 10th volume. It's a death of death and a death of Christ. And I was reading it, and I came across a passage that was so moving to me, it literally made me drop the book. And I looked it up this morning, and it was basically, uh, he's talking about Old Testament, what the Old Testament said about those who would bear God's wrath. 
And this is just part of it. He says, this is from the Old Testament. He says, I will smite the shepherd of the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. He was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted and laid upon him was the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief. He made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and on and on and on. In other words, I sat there thinking Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. Jesus knew. Remember the eternal gospel. When Jesus became incarnate, when he went to the cross, he wasn't going to the cross saying, I wonder what's going to happen while I'm up here. He came and he knew that his whole purpose of coming here on earth was to drink the full cup of God's wrath all the way down to the dregs so that you and I would not have to bear that cup. And the question is, why would you then bear it if it's already been done? Why would you carry that around? Jesus has already done it. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most people teach that, well, it was at that time that God turned his back on Jesus. I don't think that's true. The reason Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is not because God turned his face away. It's because God turned upon him with the full measure of his wrath. And the relationship was broken, not because God was ignoring him, but because God was pouring out wrath upon him. The wrath that you and I deserved. And the question is, are you going to let him bear it, or are you going to bear it yourself? Because if you're going to bear it yourself, there's more news here for you. He says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of his name. And the language here is basically that of Sodom and Gomorrah of God continually raining down smoke, fire, torment on those who refuse to trust the beast. Have a good day, church. That was planned for the dramatic pause. Let's continue. So what's interesting is where do verses 12 and 13 fit in? Because on one hand, he gives this glorious picture of, of the future as far as the church goes, that they'll be in the, you know, Mount Zion with the Lamb singing his praises. And then they give this great warning passage, and here's what is in store for those who refuse to trust Jesus. And then suddenly, he, you're in a different place. Because notice verse 12, he says, Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And in verse 13, he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So what's going on here? There's a sense in which John, he's given us this great picture of heaven, he's given us this horrible picture of hell, and now he gives us a reality check. In other words, verse 12 brings us back to reality, where we live right now. And where we live right now, he says, this is a call to endure. And why is it a call to endure? It can only, the only reason he would give the church a call to endure is if he expected them to actually go out and engage the world with this message. In other words, if you never go out, if you never engage, if you never uh, bear witness to the gospel outside of the four walls of the church, you really don't have to endure anything, do you? In fact, most of us spend a lot of time trying to avoid having to endure anything because that means suffering. Yet John's ex- expectation here is that, that you've heard this, what's going to happen? On one hand, you have this, this picture of blessing. On the other hand, you see what's in store for those who don't know Jesus. And the assumption is, is that you will engage. And that will be hard. And because of that, this is a call to endure. 
And I love this last part where he says in verse 13, the promise of blessing. He says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, blessed are those, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. You know, those of you who know me well, certainly my family knows this and my wife knows it better than anyone at all. Almost anything I do, one of the first things I do is I just think, I can't help but think through what's the worst case scenario. People say, well, you know, can we do this or that? My immediately, my mind just immediately begins to calculate the worst case scenario. What's the worst case scenario and can I live with it? Now often, the worst case scenario involves some kind of death. That's true. And I say, can I live with it? That was the very worst thing that could happen. I'd die. Then what? Then I'm on Mount Zion singing. Then I'm with the Lamb. Then there's no more tears. Then there's no more crying. That's not really a bad scenario, is it? And I think what John is giving them here is this promise of blessing. That what's it, when you think about engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus, what is the worst possible thing that could happen? You get killed. Yeah. Another day at the office, right? But in reality, what's the, the worst case scenario is that you would get killed. And here's what he says for those who are killed in the line of duty, if you will, sharing the gospel. He says, write this. He wants them to specifically put this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now notice he doesn't say their deeds precede them. That God's letting them in because of some good they've done. He says they are, they're brought to heaven and their deeds follow them. And I think it's just his way of saying, I know what you have been through. I know what you've gone through. I know what you've sacrificed. And blessed are you. That's a beatitude, by the way. There's seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. I've never, not have time to talk about it, but it's, it's just like blessed are the poor. He's saying here, blessed are those who die in the Lord. It's a blessing to happen. So where does that, that, that leave us? I think really all of chapter 14 at the end of the day is a call to discipleship and it's a call to death. It's a call to death in a number of ways. Let me read to you Mark chapter 8, verses 35 and 36, I think. Well, start at 34. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? In other words, what Jesus tells his disciples is this. He says, if you, if you want to gain your life, you, you must lose it. If you want to be blessed, you must lose. You must die. And that's not just, I think, in the context of the gospel. If you think about every other area in our life, Think about your marriage. You want a successful marriage? You need to learn how to die. You want to be a successful parent? You, need, you probably need to learn how to die some. You want to be a successful employee or an successful boss? You probably need to learn how to die some. Not physically, but certainly die to your sin. Die to your desires. Die to everything that defines you in order that you may gain. And Jesus in chapter 14 does the exact same thing that he's done in chapter 8 of Mark. He says, will you follow me, basically? On one hand, there, there is this the scenario that you do follow, that you don't follow Jesus, and ultimately you bear judgment. Or the scenario that you do follow Jesus, and you die in the process, but you bear blessing. Which will it be? In other words, it's another way of counting the cost. On one hand, is the cost of the gospel such that you're willing to bear, and is, does it outweigh the cost of not following 
Jesus, the second half of that, what we looked at today. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that just as we continue to look at this book of Revelation, it tends to get deeper and deeper, but it gets simpler and simpler. And I pray that we'd leave this place asking ourselves,